Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and today's podcast is both political and personal. As our listeners know, I've been trying to navigate the road forward after losing my life partner, Susan, in December. And as part of this journey, I went to Washington, D.C. in January to re-engage in the heart of national politics in this country. And one of the first people I sought out when I went to D.C. was the person who will be today's guest. And I sought her out because I knew that she has also had to navigate this road, having lost her partner five years ago. And I also sought her out because she has continued to move forward in doing the work of organizing, making change, and making a difference. And that is the model I aspire to. And I guess has been one of my role models on this and on so many things in so many ways over the years. And I'm just really delighted that she's joining us today for this conversation. And I was telling my friends after she and I had breakfast in D.C. in January that we spent about half an hour talking about how you navigate loss and grief and the systems that you need. And then we spent about an hour strategizing about this political movement and what needs to be done. And, and everybody who knows both of us says, of course, that's how you guys spent your time. And I'm thrilled that all of you now get the chance to spend some time with her as well. And I'm sure you'll benefit from her insights and experience and wisdoms I have over the past couple of decades. And for this conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Charlene, we have made it out of my month, Black History Month, and entered yours, Women's History Month. Do you want to introduce our guest, who has been a leader in the movement for civil rights and women's equality for many decades? Hi, Steve. Yes, um, I am so thrilled and honored to be able to introduce today's guest. And I have to say I'm a little beside myself because I've just increasingly, I already knew about her, but increasingly learned a lot more about her before our interview. And I am now like, I can't believe, you know, I'm going to be able to interview her. Just really excited. Our guest today is Heather Booth. Heather is a leading, to say the least, strategist, activist, and organizer for progressive issues and electoral campaigns in this country, one of the main architects of our progressive ecosystem, and a pioneer on so many fronts over the past 50 years, just truly a legend. She began organizing during the civil rights, anti-Vietnam War, and women's movements of the 1960s, participating in sit-ins and traveling to Mississippi for the 1964 Freedom Summer Project, uh, by the way, there's an incredible photo of her playing the guitar with Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, we're going to include that in the show notes. It's just such a great photo. While she was in college and before abortion became legal in this country, Heather began a revolutionary safe underground abortion service in Chicago called Jane in 1969. Heather has also directed a number of national organizations and campaigns. For example, in 1973, she founded the Midwest Academy, a training program for social change leaders and organizers that still exists to this day. In 2000, she served as the executive director of the NAACP National Voter Fund. That helped to increase African-American turnout in the 2000 election by 2 million voters. She's really just done too much for us to capture in this intro because her bio is so incredible. But I will say that Everybody should go and check out this excellent documentary about her. It's about her life. It's on Amazon. It's called Heather Booth, Changing the World. I watched it not only one time, but twice and kept pausing to kind of like, because so many moments took my breath away that I had to take it all in and process. So I highly recommend it to everybody. And with that, welcome, Heather. 
Charlene, that was such a generous introduction. <laughs> uh, it, truly, it's my honor to be on a, a program with you, uh, such a movement partner for so many years. And certainly anything Steve Phillips asked me to do, I'm grateful to do if I possibly can. So I was really thrilled when you asked me to be on this show. Steve, you've really helped to change the political debate in this country and to understand the extremely important role of what we used to call, what's the base, <laughs> the mm -hmm. base of the progressive movement of the Democratic Party, of, of the change makers in the country and the importance of people of color especially of African-Americans. And your book, Brown is the New White, and uh, your most recent book uh, have, have advanced the debate along with programs like this. So I, I thank you both as a thought partner, movement partner, someone I've learned from, and I really appreciate being on this show with you. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I think we've, we've been in the trenches together. And so it's good to, you know, we get this chance to kind of step back and share and then share our conversations with the, with the broader audience. I really appreciate your, your making the time. Steve, I also do want to recognize Susan Sandler, your, your life partner, as you mentioned, who, who herself also helped to change the debate and uh, drew attention to who are the consultants, who are the people who advise, and how do we move forward a program that really represents the best of America. Yeah, well, thank, thank I you. honor her, recognize her, and your long partnership. Well, thank you for that. And, 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 on, and, and on that note, you know, I thank you also for making the time to see me um, in January. I really, I really appreciated that. And then kind of in that spirit, right, of a lifelong struggle with a lifelong partner, I, I actually didn't know the story about you and Paul getting together. So for our listeners, um, Heather's partner was Paul Booth, who was a labor leader for in the ASPE for, for, for many decades, actually, and the overall progressive movement. I was fascinated, and it's also captured in the documentary, that it, maybe you could share just for our listeners the story of how you and Paul met and got married. I thought that was quite interesting and fascinating. <laughs> I was a campus leader in 19... 1966 this was. And on my campus, the University of Chicago, they were collaborating with the selective service system. They were providing a rank order of the men uh, students to the draft boards. And if you had a lower ranking of grade point average, it was more likely that you would be drafted. And we knew there was a relationship between rank order of students and class and race. And we thought that the university shouldn't be providing that to the selective service system. So we had a demonstration against the rank, this ranking of students. We went into the administration building. We sat down. It was the first sit-in against the war in Vietnam. And while we were there for several days, we asked some outside speakers to come in. Paul Booth at that point was the National Secretary of Students for a Democratic Society. In 1965, the New Left was the leading uh, student movement in the country, and SDS had the largest campus-based organization of that movement. And he came over to the campus to speak. He had heard about me. I had heard about him. Uh, he, he was a national leader, so it's not as surprising I heard about him. And he came over to find me, and he said, may I sit here? And as he sat mm. down, we talked <laughs> endlessly for three days and three nights, as long as the sit-in went wow. on of four days. And after three days, it must have gone on longer because after three days, he asked me to marry him. 
Oh my and gosh. Two days later, I said I would, but let's wait for a year until I graduate. So we were married for 50 years. Wow. He died five years ago. And we mm-hmm. were movement partners, not only anti war, but other social change movements of the last five decades. So long, long before uh, dating apps, go to a sit-in and you meet your life partner, right? And, um, oh, and it also makes me think way. that uh, I met Susan at an education reform conference, and I had been a you know anti-apartheid activist on campus, and we didn't know each other on campus. But one of the first things she had known of my activism, so one of the first things she says to me was. Um, I heard you give speeches, right? And so, um, so the, the whole thing about being in the movement together really there's a whole actual depth of like partnership and commitment and journey. So, so as I've been reflecting back on our time together, trying to look at what we did and what we had an impact, and think about the period going forward, and I you know do want to you know reemphasize that I am really much at this particular juncture of you know trying to determine and plan and you know look at going forward. I really do just want to you know say again, you know Heather, how much your example is quite inspiring to me at this particular moment, actually. But as I reflect on what we felt very good about and best about in the work that we did was actually was finding and backing different leaders who would go on to have an impact and 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 to make a significant contribution to the movement. As I've thought about that, I really noted the interplay of the larger movement for justice and then the deepening commitment of particular individuals who, who would take part in that movement. So like for me, a lot of the formative experience was the Free South Africa movement in the 1980s. I'm seeing these different you know, black folks in South Africa running through the streets, chanting for democracy, feeling this call to how could I respond and what could I actually do to be helpful. And I think for you, it was the civil rights movement and, the, and, and Freedom Summer, at least in, in large part. So I was wondering if you could share with our listeners what made you want to go down to Mississippi? And then how did that experience shape your development as an activist and a leader? I'll certainly talk about the Mississippi experience because it was so important. And the whole model of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and its commitment to organizing in communities led me to a fundamental belief in my life that if we organize, we can change this world. But you need to do the work. You need to organize. And I particularly now add, you need to do it with love at the center. As the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had often said, they wanted to build a beloved community. Mm -hmm. But I, I wanted to make one comment, Steve, first about Uh, You mentioned the uh, anti-South African apartheid demonstrations that you said in the 1980s. You know, Paul, my husband, when he was National Secretary of SDS, initiated the first round of, I believe the first round of demonstrations against apartheid on a significant scale that was in 1966 or 67, There were 10 U.S. banks that were about to bail out apartheid, and the uh, SDS called for for demonstrations in front of the banks. And one of the early civil disobedience uh, efforts that I was involved in was a uh, civil disobedience and then arrest at, I think it was Chase Manhattan Bank, Chase Bank. We were at the one in Chicago. So I'm just saying the struggle has many different mothers and fathers mm. and origins, and and we reconnect. And then uh, Paul and I were also involved in, in the other arrests when there was the uh, much more visible uh, movement, much more robust movement against apartheid. And we were arrested again in Chicago and also with our 
uh, at that point, teenage son who wasn't arrested, but was picked up with us. (laughs) So we carried on a family tradition. Family that protest together. But to go back to Mississippi, in 1964, African-Americans in Mississippi were being brutalized, threatened, lived in fear often if they just lived, uh, but particularly if they aimed to Uh, register, tried to vote, tried to live lives of real dignity and respect with equality. And all that terror that was going on, no one in the Mississippi power structure was paying attention to. And there was a concern how to get public attention to it. And Bob Moses and others in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but also in NAACP and other groups that came together in a coordinated federation of organizations or COFO, Uh, in Mississippi, decided to ask Northern students to come down and provide support to the courageous actions of the African-American leadership in the South. And by the Northern students coming down, they thought and were right that it would focus national attention, might bring additional resources that the Northern students might have and aid that struggle. Though there were conflicts about whether or not that was the right path to take, Mm-hmm. Uh, and also ensure that the local leadership really stayed as the leadership of the of the struggle, which they did. So I went down. I was in three towns uh, in Rollville with Ms. Hamer and in Shaw, Mississippi, where I spent most of the time, and also in Cleveland, Mississippi, uh, with Amzi Moore, who really initiated the, the focus on voting rights mm-hmm. um, and that freedom struggle. And people probably know about that summer project because of the horror of the three young volunteers, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner, who were killed at the hands of the Klan. There are many, many stories from that summer. But within a year, we had a Voting Rights Act. And we had Mm. that because people organized. And so that fundamental lesson is that it's often when things are most challenging, most most dangerous to our lives, that if we organize, if we move forward, that's when we often can make the greatest change. And I think we have to remember that for now, because many people lose heart as they see this MAGA right wing, white supremacist and uh, threatening neo-fascist movement developing. But when we've organized in the past, we often make progress at the moments of greatest challenge. There's one other story I wanted to tell about Mississippi. I think there's a movie being made about it now. But the family I lived with in in Shaw, the little town in Bolivar County, I lived with the Hawkins family, uh, Andrew and Mary Lou Hawkins and their children, and their courage, their caring, their protection at risk to themselves that summer was uh, life-changing for me. But the tragedy I wanted to mention is that Because of the work that the Hawkins family did, they were among the first to integrate the public schools. They not only took in the volunteers during the summer project, they also, Andrew, started a sharecroppers union and actually testified before Congress on the need to raise the amount of money that you got for a bale of cotton. I think they wanted to raise it by five cents. And after the summer project, four members of the Hawkins family were killed. Their house had been firebombed twice, and in the second firebombing, both a son and two grandchildren were killed, and then later Mrs. Hawkins was killed. 
I mention it because most people probably don't even know mm-hmm. that four people in one family were killed. Yeah. And just think of the other murders, the other terror that people faced that we don't even know about. Yeah, that's actually something I really tried to think about and try to see how I could lift up in my my uh, latest book as well. So I talk about how they, you know, Confederates have part of their battle plan has been to silently sanctioning terrorism. And I specifically talk about, you know, the Mississippi, those efforts, and that so many people like that, um, who we know and don't know, like you're saying, have given their lives for the cause. And well, I guess it is and but, right? Then we've also had the you're saying we, people with these sacrifices and we did get the voting rights act, we did get the uh, civil rights act. And um so it's definitely there are the results, but then I don't think we always appreciate the full price that people have had to pay. It's also why your program and your writings and and as Susan said, you're, you 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 give good talks <laughs> <laughs> that all of that matters and that we tell the stories and pass it on. Heather, speaking of stories, there are so many stories of your work that we want to lift up, but we have a short amount of time. So one part of your work that I definitely want to lift up, and it's incredible because this is you know you founded an organization called Jane in the late 60s, shortly after the chapter, you know, that we just discussed. So it's just like you just kept going. And what Jane was, was an underground abortion counseling service that began in 1969. And you founded this out of your college dorm while you were at the University of Chicago, which is just unbelievable to me. So people start, you know, internet startups and you started an underground abortion counseling service. Abortions, again, were still legal at the time. And didn't become legal until about a decade later in 1973 with Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade. Over 11,000 abortions, safe abortions, were carried out through Jane until 1973 when the organization was disbanded because Roe v. Wade had been decided. And that history is now the subject of a HBO documentary that came out last year, 2022. It's called The Janes. Why did you start Jane? And... How did the operation work? Thanks for raising that up and and a few clarifications even. In 1965, I was back on my campus and a friend told me his sister was pregnant and nearly suicidal. And could I Mm -hmm. help her get an abortion? I knew nothing about abortion at that point. It's hard for people to remember, but in 1965, at least for me and for most people, I think we didn't even talk about sex outside of the most private and intimate connections. Abortion Mm. wasn't really discussed. We barely knew what happened in our own bodies, what contraception was. In fact, when when a friend of mine on campus had been raped at knife point and we went to student health to get a gynecological exam, she was told student health didn't cover gynecological exams and was given a lecture on a promiscuity. So it's hard to remember a time when this was, talk about in the closet, this was really... Uh, not, not that long ago, as Steve and I always say, it's not actually that long. It wasn't that long ago. But of course, Sorry. because we organized, we do win when we organize, when we take action. So in 1965, as an act of a good deed for a friend, I said I'd try to find someone who could provide an abortion. I didn't know it at the time, but three people talk, uh, arranging an abortion was a conspiracy to commit a felony. I I didn't quite know that at the time, but I knew it wasn't legal. And so I went to the medical arm of the civil rights movement, the Medical Committee for Human Rights, 
And some may know the name Quentin Young, who was the head of that nationally. And I found an extraordinary doctor, T.R.M. Howard. I only learned about his history later. He had been a great civil rights leader in Mississippi who came to Chicago when his name appeared on a Klan death list because, amongst many other things, he had spoken out for the investigation of the murder of Emmett Till. And in fact, when I just saw the movie Till uh, that tells the story of the the murder of this teenager. Uh, Dr. Howard is a, is a character in the movie oh, wow. uh, that tells the true story. So I contacted Dr. Howard by phone. We actually never met. And uh, I knew he was remarkable because here he trusted a white woman on the phone <laughs> without meeting me who knew what would happen to him. He arranged the procedure. It was successful. And I thought that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. I had done a good deed and I moved on. But word spread and someone else called. I made another arrangement with Dr. Howard and then word spread and someone else called. And after a few of these calls, I asked Dr. Howard to brief me on what's involved in an abortion. What do you do before? What do you do after? What's the price? It was $500. Could we negotiate on the price? Could we get two for the price of one? Could we get three for the price of one? (laughs) And I've never had to face this situation myself. So I, I had to learn from him. And he was incredibly responsive. Hmm. Over time, as more and more people were coming through, I also lost track of Dr. Howard. It turned out, again, I only learned later, that he had been arrested for providing abortions. Hmm. So I found another provider whose name was Mike. And Mike carried on the same system that I had with Dr. Howard. And that went on till 1968 or 69 when so many were coming through. I was a grad student and working full-time. And at that point in 68, was expecting my first child. And so I realized I had to recruit others into it. And at the end of any meeting that I'd go to, I'd say, if you want to discuss abortion, come see me. Mm-hmm. You want to work on this issue. And I recruited about 12 other women. I trained them in all I knew. And when they seemed to have the counseling system down, I passed on the information and they made the arrangement with Mike. That went on for several years. And then there were so many people coming through that the women started to assist Mike. And because it wasn't public and wasn't legal, rather than saying, we'd publicize it and say, pregnant, don't want to be, call and have a phone number. We said, call Jane. And we named Mm -hmm. the system Jane. And as the women started to support the procedures and become involved themselves, they also found out that Mike wasn't actually a licensed physician. And what they realized is if they could provide safe medical procedures in a caring environment, which Jane was, and if you could do it without a license, if he could do it, so could they. And so the women of Jane performed those 11,000 abortions. I actually think the number of abortions through Jane overall, uh, before the women were doing the procedures, may have been 20, 25,000. But the women of Jane performed 11,000 abortions before Roe. And there is, there's at least, there's several movies now, but one is called The Janes by uh, the producers Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes. And there's a, another movie named Call Jane uh, with Sigourney Weaver, Uh, and some other films about it. It's a remarkable story. It really is. And I think it's a history that 
a lot of people don't know it, including a lot of women in this uh, in this country. I just wanted to ask you a quick question. I loved how casually you said, and while I was running this whole organization and operation, I was a mom. I was in grad school. I was a full-time worker. I'm a mother myself. And as I've often shared on this podcast, it is just not easy and at all, let alone I am not in grad school and not running the kind of operation you were. Looking back, how do you remember how you balanced being a mother and a movement leader and doing all of that? Well, in part, I think I may have been out of my mind. Uh, <laughs> really, I, I mean, there were times where I, I remember telling people, if while I'm talking to you, I don't respond, I may have fallen asleep. So just touch, touch me <laughs> on the arm. It's just like, you, I mean, it's it's a transformed reality. But it's also true. Number one, I found such joy in doing movement work. Well beyond mm-hmm. Jane. To, I, I know this may seem hard to believe, but Jane was like a small, initially, a small thing that I was involved in. And if you said, what are you involved in? I wouldn't have mentioned Jane, partly because it wasn't public, but also the work in the anti-war movement and the women's movement and the civil rights movement. That was where, in some ways, my greatest excitement was. And and I got joy Mm -hmm. from the work. For all the hardship of raising children, I got joy from my children. And particularly, I built up relationships and friendships that are still with me to this day. There's one friend I have, Robin Kaufman. She says her role, that if there ever is a history written, (laughs) that I I should designate that in addition to other things she did, her role was in part helping me take care of my kids. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she ran a little- Very, very important role. Called Little Porcupines. So friendships, relationships, are amongst the most important things to keep us going for the long run. The village, you know, that's the what um, my friends and I often talk about. My other mom friends is we lean on each other, try to create, recreate that village that we think our ancestors had. And I think that that's what you were touching upon is the importance of a village and having those other, especially women around to support. Speaking of women supporting each other uh, and history, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, it is Women's History Month. Yay, we get one month, even though we're over half the population. (laughs) And one of the issues that's highlighted in the excellent documentary about your work and your life is how much sexism was part of the progressive movement, I'll say probably still is, but definitely when you got started, I love this quote from your husband. He said, for sure, the meetings that you were in, you were often the only woman, I think, and there was a lot of testosterone. I wanted to see if you can talk about how you navigated those challenges of asserting your leadership as a woman in what was definitely back then a very male-dominated space in the movement world, and perhaps it's still in some, some realms of it is the same today or at some levels of it is the same today. But especially, you know, when you were starting and those early years, how did you do that? I think I have always been an insecure person. I've often felt I don't know enough. I'm not smart enough, not pretty enough, not this enough, not that enough. I don't know exactly what to do. And I realized in part because of the women's movement that many people feel that way. Certainly many women feel that way, especially many young women. 
but I think the whole society tells us you're not good enough. You're not mm-hmm. smart enough. You're not thin enough. You're not, you're not enough. And so it, I think there are different reactions you can have to that. One reaction is you become the victim and you feel you're not mm-hmm. enough and you can't move forward and you are ground down. There's another reaction to kind of deny it and treat others who are struggling without the generosity and caring that you also might crave. And then the approach that I took was to acknowledge my own feelings of not being good enough, not being smart enough, not knowing exactly what to do, and deciding that if I felt that way, maybe others felt that way, and maybe together we could figure things out together. And so it allowed me to take a kind of leadership with an honesty that said, you know, I think many of us are feeling X, or here's something that seems to be unspoken, or this meeting seemed to be pretty boring. Can we liven it up? Or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, gee, this doesn't seem to be a sensible plan. Or this is a great plan. Let's celebrate it. And so that in itself led me to both seek and develop strong relationships with others as friends, that many friendships I've had my whole life and many friendships I make well, Charlene, even on this call, I hope we now connect. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm fangirling. <laughs> I'm very and I'd be thrilled. Well, and it's all mutual. This is, and, this and is then, amazing to hear hear you lay this out. I, and from that, it's one of the reasons I started the training center, Midwest Academy, because I felt, oh, there were all these smart people. They knew just what to do, hmm. and I didn't. On you know, I might have looked up to you, Steve, and said, "Oh my God, you're giving such a great speech." I would be so scared before I gave a talk. I would have to figure out is there a place where I could sometimes throw up in private so that no one would. I was so <laughs> nervous. And what I realized is, you can break down any system. You can look at okay, how do people figure out what is a strategy of what to do? Well, first you have to figure out what you want, what are your goals? Okay, and then I realized a lot of groups were working and hadn't figured out what they really wanted to win. And then you have to figure out, well, who is the power to give you what you wanna win? Many people were kind of thrashing around and protesting, but maybe not to the people they needed to really influence. So who were those right targets with the power? And then who were the people who you needed to organize in order to influence those in power, both your existing base and what's the allied base that you need in order to have enough to win? What are the resources you need? And then what are the tactics you need? What, what's the message you need? And those are some of the questions that we address at Midwest Academy. And I decided to train others, both because I saw how important it was for me to learn And again, going back to the days in Mississippi summer and the freedom movement, the theme was each one, teach one. If you know, teach. If you don't know, learn. And we all need to teach and learn together. So there's a funny way in which my own insecurity, I turned into a strength not to beat me down, but to raise us all up together. I wonder if we could dig a little bit deeper on the Midwest Academy part of that is, this is its 50th anniversary, right, this year in terms of its of its creation. Um, as again, I was saying that one of the things that I'm really, you know, reflecting what 
you know, Susan Nyathan was really trying to find and support leaders. One of the things I highlighted and distilled in my book, turns around all of the places that I feature that have made significant change. One of the key elements, what we call in liberation battle plans, the centrality of leaders who have stuck it out and done good, effective work. But I'm interested in the, like the institutions and the infrastructure to do that. Can you talk a little bit more about how you actually went about creating the entity, kind of like who you convened and how you developed the program and that kind of thing? Oh, I'm really glad you asked about it. And Steve, we actually connected indirectly through Midwest Academy because you were one of the wonderful leaders of the United States Student Organization, which at one point was the most dynamic and largest of the student campus organizations, kind of the inheritor of those new left organizations. And Midwest Academy developed a training relationship with United States Student Association. And many of the great leaders like yourself, Carmen Berkeley, Jess Pierce, I mean, so many, Jen Brown, so many others, Eddie Morales, are people who were trained directly or indirectly through the alliance with Midwest Academy. Mm. So uh, how it started, for one, I had been fired three times for organizing and our family had no money once I was in a school situation and after the 1968 uh, uprising after Dr. King was killed the principal said that I was behind a student protest that happened. And so he didn't let me come back after I took a maternity leave that he agreed to, because at that point we didn't have uh, legal maternity leaves. And now it would have been against the law because people have organized. We've won such things as that maternity leave. Um, It was another place that I was fired for organizing when a clerical worker was totally mistreated. Anyway, there are other interesting stories. But so our family, we had we had no money. People were bringing us food because I had lost my job and my husband wasn't working at that point. And it was, it was really a rough time. And I decided I would never be fired again. And so one of the ways not to be fired is if you work for yourself. So I decided to create- There you go. <laughs> also the model of uh, freedom schools, and of training others uh, made a very profound impact on me from, again, the Freedom Summer Project. And also I had been through another training center that existed. There was was, uh, one or two others in the country. I had gone through one and they said women couldn't be organizers. And I thought, well, that's not right. (laughs) And so the first class, the first training center uh, session that we started with was to train women organizers, and I used money I won from a back pay suit Hmm. that took two and a half years for one of those places where I was really incredibly unjustly fired. And the first session was focused on training, particularly training women organizers at 1973 at a really vital point in the emerging women's movement. And we helped to support the creation of the working women's organizations, nine to five, women employed, uh, and other groups that were around the country. We had wanted to actually create a national campaign against Sears Roebuck that we thought could have been a cross-race, cross-class alliance between those who were customers who weren't allowed to get a credit card in their own name uh, for women, and the employees, where the men employees got, everyone got a percentage of what you sold, but the men sold things like furnaces or, you know, boilers 
and the women sold what was called notions, you know, ribbons and candy, and which which got a higher amount of money. Uh, and so that was one of the campaigns that we were starting to initiate. We worked with NOW. There's a long story that I actually think may come out soon in a book about how that campaign was thwarted by Sears. But anyway, we were focused on developing leadership. It was very interactive. And the training had really was a combination of the movement spirit and movement lessons and commitment to deep organizing that I learned in the civil rights movement and early women's movement, relationship building, and the specific skills of organizing that came out of the community organizing movement. But amongst the things we added was we did add an elements of both ideology, vision, and values. Uh, we added culture. We also taught strategic planning so that people could figure out what to do when you didn't know what to do, as well as specific tactics, how you have a good meeting, how you have an accountability session, and other tactics, how you do public speaking and, and the like in a very interactive way based on role play and the development of a strategic plan for the specific campaign that they might be on. I'm just taking in all of this. It's just amazing. And I know that we could just talk to you for so long because your history and your work, the depth and breadth of it is so incredible. But we know you're busy. And so we're going to wrap up soon. But I did want to ask you a last question, which is, Heather, I, I want to say how moved I was when you very vulnerably just said, I think my whole life I've been somebody who thought I wasn't good enough. That was not what I expected to hear from you. And again, because I've never met you or spoke to you. So I've only watched you from afar from watching you in interviews uh, and seeing your documentary. And when I was watching your documentary, I thought, oh, this woman's amazing, which you are. But I thought this woman is like, it's almost like, um, like superhuman. You know what I mean? When we, we see somebody like that, you, you go from one leading one movement and uh, organization to another, delivering all these speeches. I thought, oh, this this woman is, you know, so different than somebody like me or any any, you know, many people I know. But then you were basically saying, no, I'm I'm just like you. I have those insecurities. And I think it's so important for so many women, especially young women, to hear from women like you that you have moved through with the same doubt, self-doubt, but this is how you chose to, what to do with it. Speaking about young people, I have a child, she's in, a daughter, she's in middle school. I think for young people today, a lot of the world that they're living in can feel very overwhelming and scary. Some of it, what I hear from young people is there are challenges that they feel are insurmountable. And I feel, I feel that your story is really inspiring and hopeful to remind us that during all the times you were in, that felt the same too, all the issues. What what advice do you have for young people today, and maybe especially young women who look at everything going on and think, I want to do something, but I don't know where to start, and I don't know if I can be the person to do that? The most important thing, I think, is to know that they are good enough. They're more than good enough. And combined with others, that when we organize we have changed this world and we will change this world, but only when we take action together and especially with love at the center. And that means love for others, but also love for themselves, caring for mm -hmm. themselves. And, you know, Dr. King had said, 
The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But it's up to us to do the bending and to have a mm. life of meaning where you are involved in a way that it, if you don't know enough at the start, that's not what matters. What matters is you have a sense of what is right or wrong, what is justice. Just like when I started Jane, the underground service, I didn't know what to do, but I thought I'm doing a good deed for someone else. And I learned in the course of moving forward. And, and right now, I do think the most important thing when we are on a knife's edge in this country, a fight right. between freedom and authoritarian rule, uh, destruction of freedom. And we're on a knife's edge between those two choices. And the opposition seems so great, we should remember that it's often at the times of greatest challenge that we have made the greatest progress. But we make that progress when we support each other with love at the center, when we come together and when we organize, we still will change this world. Well, Beautiful, yeah, the, thank uh, you. On this point of a meaningful life, I really do think, you know, that's what you have modeled, Heather. It's what uh, Paul models, you and Paul did together. It's what Susan modeled, Susan and I tried to do together when I'm trying to carry on. And so I just really want to thank you for your example. Thank you for your work. And thank you for your friendship and partnership in this and for joining us today. I very much appreciate that, Steve and Charlene. I look forward to many more years of partnership together, both with those who've made this program, Steve and Charlene, but also with those of you who are listening and promoting this work, because in your own lives and together, we are organizing to change the world. All right. That is a, what do they say, living legend in the movement. And, and I'm just you know blessed to also have, call her friend and a partner. And so that is all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Heather on Twitter at hboothgo. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at, at Democracy in Color. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is Democracy in Color production, produced by Olivia Parker, support from Charlene Chang, Vola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, Heather says, if we organize, we can change the world. Keep the faith.